Longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, Cristina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a pharmacy to get one last thing. Pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of black and white photos, she boarded the next bus for Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Cristina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that, that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with the reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. And at each place she left her picture, taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner of a phone booth. And on the back of each photo she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was in too many ways too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Within that true and moving story, there were two searches going on at the same time. The young Christina was understandably searching for a better life, though she had a mistaken notion of where to find it. Her loving mother Maria was searching for her lost daughter, desperate to save her from the danger that she was in and the consequences of her mistakes. In that story, we get a powerful portrayal of the gospel. For we are all Christina. But the amazing news is that God is like her mother Maria. 
Through Jesus, he has come searching for us in the darkest and most broken places imaginable. Such is his great love for us. I hope that illustration will prove helpful as we explore our passage. The truth is that faith always begins with a search. We're never going to find God if we do not seek for him. Perhaps this is the greatest problem for the West. We're so comfortable. We have so much that we don't think we need any help from outside. We live in an age of endless entertainment. There's always something new to watch on Netflix. We live in an age where advertising has trained us all to be selfish and self-important. We live in a cosseted bubble of apathy and naivety about the reality of life and death. We are so far from Christina's situation that we feel that we have nothing more to search for. And perhaps this is what is keeping so many in places like Isla from seriously exploring faith. But just occasionally, even here, our comfort is disturbed enough to set us searching once more. It usually happens through a difficult experience or the witness of suffering. A sudden bereavement sends us on the search for an answer to death. An unjust war close at hand sends us on the search for justice and peace. A big mistake sends us on the search for a deeper level of forgiveness that will take our sense of shame away. In these moments, we realise that we need to find something much bigger and stronger than ourselves. Our passage from John chapter 1 begins with this sense of searching. John, Andrew and Simon, Philip and Nathaniel are all looking for something, or rather someone, who will be something more in their lives. From the titles that they use for Jesus in this passage, we gain an indication of what it was they were searching for. John was looking for the Lamb of God. He was looking for a saviour, one who would take away the sin of the world. Andrew and his friend were looking for a rabbi, somebody who would teach them the truth and guide them through the difficult decisions of life. All of them were looking for the Messiah, the one promised by Moses and the prophets of old. As Israel lay enslaved by the Romans, they were searching for God's anointed king who would bring justice and peace to them, who would be the true king on David's throne and reign with righteousness rather than the oppression of Caesar. These were the searches at the turn of the first century the search for forgiveness, truth and justice, and the search for beautiful new life. As we said a moment ago, the exact same searches are going on today for those of us who've been shaken from our comfort. So the passage begins with people desperately searching, but then, very quickly, we discover some good news. The Lord God the answer to all our needs wants to be found. 
Indeed, more than that, he wants to be truly known. This may sound incredible, but actually this is the essential truth to the whole Bible, both Old and New Testaments. 600 years before Jesus, God said this through the prophet Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. Our God really does want to be found. And to the Gospel writer John, this is the exact reason why the Father sent his Son into the world. This is why the Word became flesh. <coughs> Through Jesus, the full glory of God began to intersect with ordinary people in the midst of their everyday lives. Just notice how this process of finding Jesus takes place in this passage. First of all, we have Andrew and his friend. After being pointed out by John the Baptist, the two disciples begin to follow after Jesus. On seeing this, Jesus inquires what they want, and then he calls out to them, Come, he replies, and you will see. Beautifully, Jesus invites them both to spend the day with him, the whole day, right through to four o'clock in the afternoon. I find this really interesting. Jesus doesn't rush them or press them for an immediate response. Instead, he gives them time to properly get to know him, to learn his ways, to find out who he really is. And it quickly becomes clear that through this encounter, Andrew realises that he's finally found what he's been searching for. He rushes out to his brother Simon and exclaims, We found him! We have found the Messiah! And with that, he takes Simon along to find Jesus for himself. Later in the chapter, we read almost the same line again, as the excited Philip rushes to tell Nathaniel the good news. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now notice what happens this second time. It appears that Nathanael has been searching for the Messiah so long and has become so downhearted by his travail, he's a little sceptical at Philip's announcement. Nazareth, he says. Can anything good come from there? As a resident of Cana, the local rival village just a short distance down the hill, this sounded a little implausible. But Philip calls out, come and see. And with that, Nathaniel goes and continues his search. And wonderfully, Jesus allows Nathaniel the same space and time to get to know him well. And Nathaniel comes to discover that at last his period of searching is over. Again, we see that God really does want to be found, even by hard-hearted cynics like Nathaniel. But at this point, I want us all to see something, something really important. Do you remember how in that opening illustration, there were two searches going on. Katrina searching for a better life and her mother Maria searching 
for her lost daughter. Well, as John narrates these events, he wants us to see the same with Jesus. This process of searching and finding, it's not a one-directional process. No, not at all. Because at the same time that we are looking for God, incredibly, he is looking for us. As I said a moment ago, this is the very reason that Jesus came to earth. He came to find and rescue us, knowing that we could not do that on our own. In verse 43, it is very clear. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Did you hear that? Finding Philip. Jesus himself went looking for Philip. And he did not stop until he found him. Then as the passage goes on, the reality of Jesus' search for us becomes even more beautiful. In verses 47 to 48, Nathanael learns that Jesus knew him even before they met. He's been observing him under the fig tree. You see, Jesus had been looking for Nathanael, eagerly watching and waiting for the opportune moment to call him. This is the wonderful truth of the gospel. Jesus is looking for followers even more then we are looking for him. If that were not the case, he would not have come to earth and we would not have found him at all. Jesus knows that we need saving and that we're totally lost without him. He looks at us and he loves us and he chooses to make himself known. This is amazing grace indeed. Did you know that the hymn Amazing Grace is 250 years old this year? In 1773, John Newton published the hymn that contained his testimony of how God came to rescue him even while he did the despicable job of slave trading. And the opening verse to that great hymn contains a lyric fully appropriate for what we're thinking about from this passage. Amazing Grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This is how we are all saved from our sin. Jesus comes looking for us and then allows us to find him. The Bible scholar Tom Wright put it this way. When you go looking for Jesus and discover that he is looking for you, you will remember that day forever. Amen to that. That was definitely true for me. And I know it was for many of you as well. So our passage begins with this two-way search and the wonderful experience of the lost being found. But then it moves on a little bit and I'd like us to move with it. Once Jesus has found us and we have found him, once we've come to realise who he really is, the Lamb of God and the true Rabbi and the Messiah, Jesus then has an instruction for us. He calls us to follow, to follow him. Let's hear the dramatic verse 43 again. 
The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. This is Jesus' desire for his people. He wants us to follow him. He has moved heaven and earth, quite literally, to come and find us in our mess. And now he wants to lead us safely out of it, down the path, out of danger, and into the ultimate destination of the kingdom of God. But this concept of following here is not just some sort of heavenly tour guide. Oh no. When Jesus asks us to follow him, he is envisaging much more than that. This call to follow is the call to start an apprenticeship. These new disciples are to follow Jesus as hungry learners, hanging on his every word. By choosing to follow him, they're committing themselves to try and imitate all that he does. To learn from their new master and do what he does. A master is much more than a tour guide. A master takes unschooled and ordinary people and transforms them into something so much more. Much later in the New Testament, after Jesus has died on the cross and he's risen again and he's ascended into heaven, we meet the likes of Simon and his friends again. They're now sharing their experience of Jesus in quite a hostile place. They're declaring that salvation can only be found in Jesus and nowhere else. A very bold claim indeed when you're standing near the temple. But just listen to what we read next in Acts 4.13. When the Jewish rulers saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. What a difference it makes being with Jesus. Simon and John had been following Jesus for three long years and it totally transformed their lives and their character. Through following, the apprentices became like their master. And it's this promise that makes all the difficulties of following Jesus worthwhile. It's this promise that means when you have to leave some of those things that you once held dear, that it's still the right thing to do. Following Jesus is not a one-off thing. It's a lifetime of active and sacrificial decisions. Jesus calls us to follow him every day of our lives and in all circumstances. Pandemics, wars, financial crises, bereavement, everything. But this act of following Jesus is always worth it in the end. I wonder as this new year has rolled around, as we again assess our lives and our priorities, are we still following Jesus? Are we trying to learn and imitate him as closely as we used to? Or do we need to make a few adjustments at the beginning of 2023? So we've thought about God finding us and us finding him. And we've heard this call to follow him with our lives. There's one final thing we need to touch on. Discipleship 
is a journey. A journey to future fulfilment. I touched on this a moment ago when I'm talking about the disciples boldly speaking for Jesus in the book of Acts. But I want us to see it here in this passage. If we choose to follow Jesus, it really will change us. When Jesus meets Simon in this passage, he gives him a new name. Verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Cephas and Peter both mean rock. Jesus sees Simon and straight away he says, You're a rock. But at this point in his life, Simon was definitely no rock. As we read on in the gospel, we discover that he was explosive and foolhardy. He was confused. He struggled to understand. So much so at one point when put under pressure, he even denied knowing Jesus three times. Simon was no rock. But Jesus knew that if Simon followed him, One day, he would be. And that is what we saw in Acts a moment ago. It was through Simon Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost that God began to build his church. Simon Peter would go on to travel and teach and even write some of our Bible. And right here, right at the beginning, Jesus knew that would be the future. So he addresses Simon in terms of the person that he will become. Jesus will help Simon to reach his full potential. And we can be sure that if we keep following Jesus, we will reach our full potential as well. But there's more. More than just seeing our character transformed, if we keep following Jesus, we will also begin to see our world transformed as well. Let's go back to Nathaniel one final time. Nathaniel was very impressed when he discovered that Jesus knew him even before they'd met. That is, after all, a very impressive thing. It's never happened to me. But Jesus quickly told him that he would come to see far greater things than that. Verses 50 and 51 Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now we will explore that remark fully in the Bible study this week. But let me give you a quick rundown. That cryptic last verse is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It comes from the story of Jacob in Genesis. Jacob had been up to all sorts of bad behaviour. And as a result, he was having to flee for his life because his brother wanted to kill him. Princes William and Harry have nothing on Jacob and Esau. And as Jacob ran out into the wilderness, he understandably began to feel guilty. He began to feel afraid and he wondered where on earth his life was headed to. And in that moment, God came and found him in a dream. And in his dream, he saw angels traveling between heaven and earth on a ladder. 
It was a visual promise to Jacob that despite his bad behaviour, God would remain with him. He was still concerned for him. He wanted to help him. And indeed, Jacob would go on to see miracles happen. Now put that quote into the concept of discipleship. Jesus says to Nathaniel, if you follow me, you will discover that God is always with you. You will see God act. You will see prayers answered. You will realise what happens when heaven touches earth through me. It changes everything. It changes lives, situations. It changes the world. And that promise is still made to us today. If we commit to following Jesus, we will see God act. We will see him act in the present. We will see prayers answered. And we will see him act in the future. Because one day Jesus will come back down the ladder and bring heaven to earth and fix all things. So the message is that yes, following Jesus at times is very costly. But the promised future is so good. The glory makes it worthwhile. There we finish. We've heard plenty of good news for one day. Jesus has come to find us. He's given us this wonderful invitation to follow him. And he promises us that if we do, we will know a wonderful future. All of that leaves is a question. Most of us here tonight have heard Jesus' call and we've chosen to follow him. How is that discipleship going? Are we still hungry to learn from him? Are we still eager to imitate him? Are we enthused enough about Jesus to run off like Andrew and Peter and tell others about who he is? We will all have ups and downs in our journey of faith. But perhaps the start of a new year is the ideal time to recommit to following Jesus, to set out again with a new vigour and gratitude to walk in his footsteps.